0: Well, good morning everybody. Um, we have been reading uh, Mark's Gospel together and this morning we're going to look at what happened when Jesus and Peter and James and John came down uh, from the mountain after Jesus' Transfiguration. Uh, as soon as they caught up with the other nine disciples, Mark says they are also caught up into a pretty chaotic scene. So let me read from Mark 9 for us verses 14 through 29. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read uh, from Mark 9. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him, and he asked them, "What are you arguing about with them?" If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word um, that we've read and heard together. And as we always do, we pray that by your spirit you would make this written word point us to the word that bears our flesh right now that you would point us to our elder brother Jesus who is sitting at your right hand praying for us right now. Father, you know where every one of us is in here this morning, those of us who have faith and those of us who don't, those of us who have faith but find that it is hesitating and halting and fearful and doubting, filled with self-reliance. So, Father, we ask that you would meet every one of us in in precisely the place where we are, that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that we would see Jesus' grace and be changed. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I uh, am not that strong in math. Uh, I never have been. Um, The the world of numbers, which I know um, makes precise perfect logical sense to some of you probably, and to many people, has always seemed a world that is impenetrable and almost magical to me. Not really strong at math. I mean, I'm not helpless. I can, uh, I can split the bill at a restaurant, um, but only if there's two of us. If there's more than two, I have to call in reserves. So somehow, um, I got through high school math, but I was sad to find out that my general education requirements um, in college included six credit hours of math. I mean, I I had gone to school to study the Bible, to study theology, and here was math haunting me, chasing me down. The last thing I wanted to do was take a couple of math classes. So I didn't. Here's what I did instead. Instead, I signed up for the uh, CLEP test with the hopes of getting all six hours uh, out of the way with one test, which may sound like a stupid plan given what I've told you about my math skills, but I had a secret weapon. I had a test prep book called Cracking the CLEP. It is uh, still in print, I'm happy to say. And the section in this book on the math CLEP CLEP test was genius because it focused not on math, but solely on beating the test. On a multiple choice exam, um, which is what the CLEP math test is, the answer is, of course, always in front of you. And so this book, instead of teaching me the math that I needed to know, taught me a technique for plugging the variables in from all of those answers into the question until one of them worked. And this technique worked on the majority of the questions on the exam. So boom, six credit hours of math done in one afternoon. Could not have been happier, saved me a bunch of time and a bunch of money. But of course it's painfully obvious that it didn't do anything at all to help me with math. So I remember telling myself that as my girls went through school, um, I would relearn math alongside them as they did their homework and as I helped them with their homework. I was really hopeful for that resolve, but even that has fallen flat. Two of the three of them have already passed me by. The fifth grader is about to pass me by. And it should be no surprise because that silly little technique that I learned to beat a test is not in any way helpful in real life. And I think that something similar is going on with the disciples in the story that we just read together. Jesus' deliverance of that boy that day happens precisely because the disciples cannot deliver him. Jesus is gone from them, he's up on the mountain, and this man brings his son to them, and it is their chance to shine. But really, whatever they have brought that day was not enough. Their little techniques, whatever they were, were not enough because those techniques had nothing to do with the thing that really mattered. And this is a story about the thing that really matters in real life. It is a story about faith, faith in place of fear and confusion and self-doubt and self-reliance. It's a story about faith, so it's a story for every one of us in here this morning, I think. So Mark ties this story in seamlessly with the story of the Transfiguration, which Pastor Dan walked all of us through last week. That had been a pretty amazing experience for the disciples who were there, Peter and James and John. As Pastor Dan put it, the veil of ordinariness had been pulled back for just a little bit, and these three got this incredible glimpse of the indescribable glory of Jesus. They got a taste of For who he really, really was. And they heard it too. They heard this voice that came from God from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. And Peter, for his part, so overcome by fear, so overcome by joy in that moment, he actually suggests that they should live there for a while. And so now our story begins through the eyes of Peter and James and John and Jesus as they come down from the mountain as they come down from that experience on the mountain. They come down from indescribable glory into the chaos and the suffering of real life. They come down and they see their nine friends are in the middle of an argument with these religious scribes and they see this crowd, this big crowd that's in turmoil surrounding that argument, taking all of that argument in and then they hear this Heartbreaking and horrific story of this boy who is treated with incredible violence by this malignant spirit. It's hard to imagine a more jarring contrast to their present experience from their previous experience. And I think that that is at least part of the point here. I think that's why Mark has us enter into this story through their eyes. I mean, we have to remember that Mark is telling us a bigger story. And in that bigger story, there has been this huge turning point. Through Peter, just before they went up to that mountain, through Peter, the disciples have admitted to Jesus that they know who he really is. They have confessed to him that they know who he really is. We know you are the king. We know you are the Messiah, the true king of the world. They have figured out that Jesus is not just announcing good news to the world in some way that, of course, they can't get their heads around yet. They have figured out that he actually is the good news to the world. And just as soon as they have admitted to Jesus that they know who he is, Jesus begins to tell them that he is going to suffer and that he's going to be mistreated by the religious authorities, that he's going to be killed by them. And more than that, he says, if you're going to follow me, you are going to suffer and you're going to be mistreated. In fact, you're going to have to take up your own cross. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, if you want life, you're going to have to lose your life. Jesus has just begun to teach them that following him will not be easy. And so what's happening there in this moment is just a vivid picture of Jesus teaching working itself out in real life. They descend from glory into chaos and into trouble. The life of faith is not all mountaintop experiences. In fact, it is mostly not mountaintop experiences. The life of faith is lived out mostly in the trenches of real everyday life like you and I live every single day, and it is often filled with struggle and trouble and suffering. I know, of course, that our individual experiences of what it has been like in our lives to follow Jesus vary a lot. It varies as much as every one of us in here, but I have been around the block often enough and with enough of you to be able to say that following Jesus does not usually get easier as we do it sometimes it gets a lot harder. And it makes sense because we get called to face new things. We get called to enter into more challenging things, places that we might never have imagined ourselves just months or years ago. For instance, we are often called more deeply into loving people who are really hard to love or called to love more deeply those who have been unlovely to us. Who have attacked us. Right? And this, this makes sense. Everything about this makes sense as we walk with Jesus, as we learn from Jesus, as we grow in Jesus. It would be really strange if we found ourselves growing callous to the difficult people in our lives. I mean, if that's what we find as we get older and as we continue in life that we're becoming callous to the difficult people around us, then we, we need to ask, who are we following? But if we're following Jesus and learning from him and growing from him, this is what we're going to find, that we are more sensitive to those people. Which opens us up to moving into their lives with open hands. Which in turn makes us vulnerable. Vulnerable to the trouble, to the pain, to the hurt they might bring into our lives. But church, this is the life of faith. We may be called to give of ourselves. We may be called to give of our resources and of our time for the good of others. And this makes sense too. It would be really strange if as we grow with Jesus and walk with him and and learn from him, it would be really strange if we find that we just start clinging more tightly to all of the stuff around us. But that isn't what happens when we follow Jesus. We find our hands opening up. We find ourselves being ready to give of what we have been given for the good of others. But this means, when we do it, that we are giving up, even if it's just an illusion, we're giving up that illusion of security, we're giving up some measure of our independence, and we become vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And we probably will be taken advantage of. And church, this is the life of faith. And I just want to tell you what you already know if this is the life that you have been living. This is the life that we have been made for. This is the life that we have been created for. And as we live this way, it is not easy, but it is deeply abundant and deeply full and deeply human, like we were made to live. So when we find ourselves thinking, man, following Jesus is hard, the last thing that we should also be thinking is that then we're doing it wrong. (laughs) Or that he doesn't love us anymore, that he's angry at us. No, we should not be thinking that because following Jesus means we will go to where he goes with every part of ourselves. And he never, ever, ever stayed away from the pain and the hurt and the shame. He always ran directly into it. And it's the same thing here. In this story, Jesus comes down off of that mountain and he wades into the mess. He wades into the heart of the pain. He goes up to that crowd and says, what are you all arguing about? And that's when this man comes forward and says, well, I brought my son to you, Jesus. There's this spirit and it seizes him and it throws him down and he grinds his teeth and he foams at the mouth Sometimes this thing throws him into the water. Sometimes it throws him into the fire. And I'm certain it's because it wants to destroy him. And it's been that way since he was a little kid. So I brought him to you, Jesus, but you weren't here. So I asked your disciples for help, and they weren't able to help. And it's really important to pay attention to what happens next. I mean, Jesus could have said, right then, bring the boy to me. Or he could have gone to the boy. Or he could have, as we've seen a bunch in Mark, he could have just said a word and the kid would be healed. But that is not what he does. Instead, Jesus shifts the entire weight of that moment. He asks these two questions that completely shift the whole weight of this moment down at the bottom of the mountain. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Faithless generation. And then he asked the boy to be brought to him. So Jesus wants to make it clear, this moment, this moment that's happening right now, this is not about arguing over who has the power or who doesn't have the power to do this thing. This moment that's happening right here and right now, it's not even about this incredible deliverance that is about to happen for this boy. This moment is about faith. This moment is about the nature of our faith. This moment is about the object of our faith. Now, if you read what the scholars and the commentators have to say about this part of the story, you'll see that they're pretty up in the air over who Jesus is directing these little questions to. Is he saying that the crowds and the scribes were faithless? Is he saying the disciples are faithless? Is he saying everybody around him is faithless? Well, I think that it is, at the very least, about the disciples. And we'll come back to that because Jesus comes back to that. But for now, the point is that Jesus has moved faith, or the lack of it, to the central place in this story. And that becomes very clear after the boy is brought to Jesus. This spirit sees Jesus and begins to confulse this boy and... While his son is writhing around in his feet in distress, the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, this man obviously had more than a passing sense that Jesus could have helped. I don't think that he doubts for a minute Jesus' compassion. I don't think he doubts for a minute Jesus' desire to help. I mean, that's why he brought his son to Jesus and to the disciples in the first place. But now, now he has seen the disciples try and fail. And so now he is suspicious about Jesus' ability to help. I don't know if you can do this, Jesus. And it is this wavering, it is this uncertainty, it is this shadowy place between our belief and our unbelief, between our faith and our fear, it is this little space (laughs) that's all that Jesus needs. (laughs) He jumps into that little space with both feet, if you can. Jesus says, if you can, (laughs) all things are possible for one who believes. In other words, just in case it hasn't sunk into us yet, this moment is about faith. And in particular, Jesus is calling out the faith of this Father. He is not asking for this guy to have great faith. He is not asking this guy to have peerless faith. He is not asking this guy to have super strong faith that everyone's going to be talking about tomorrow. It is not the strength of this guy's faith that matters. It's not the unalloyed purity of this guy's faith that matters. It is the object of this man's faith that matters. And this guy hears that call and he prays this beautiful prayer that expresses exactly where he is in precisely that moment. He looks at Jesus and he says, I believe. <laughs> Help my unbelief. I have faith, Jesus, but it is fragile and it's small. I believe, Jesus, but I'm going to tell you that sometimes it is hard for me to believe and in this moment right here and right now, it is really hard for me to believe. I have trust, Jesus, but it gets all mixed up with my fear and with my despair and with my doubt and with my self-reliance, and I second-guess it. I do believe, Jesus, but please heal my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. And that is a prayer that sticks with you. It sticks with me because it captures my own faith at times. I know, I know because I'm a pastor that there are lots of people for whom this prayer does not capture where they live most of their life of faith. And that is beautiful and to be celebrated and to be embraced if that is who you are. But to some extent, I know that this prayer captures the faith of lots of us who follow Jesus, at least at some point in our life or another. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, talks about it like this. He says, there is something in man which is always apparently on the eve of disappearing, but never disappears. An assurance which is always apparently saying farewell and yet illimitably lingers. A string which is always being stretched to snapping yet never snaps. He's talking about that tension that exists between believing and not believing, between fear and faith, between faith and doubt, between our reliance on self and our reliance on God. Listen, church, that father's prayer is not a badge of honor for being a complicated guy. He doesn't see his doubt and his fear and his unbelief as a token of authenticity or some kind of fist-shaking challenge to God. He wants forgiveness for it. He wants healing from it. He wants Jesus to weaken his doubt and to weaken his fear and to weaken his unbelief. He wants to be who he was created to be. I believe, Jesus. Help My unbelief, heal me from it. And, church, if that's who we are, if that's where we find ourselves, any of us, if that's where any of us find ourselves, then we should open-handedly pray that prayer to God. We should say it loud and long. It will not be a disappointment to him. it will not be a surprise to him he has been going back and forth with people like us for a very long time and his love for fearful halting hesitating and doubting people it is inexhaustible <laughs> he is always jumping into that thin space in our lives with both feet. He is always calling out our faith. He is always saying to us, if you can, you haven't seen anything yet. If you ever wonder if Jesus can love you with your halting, hesitating, fearful, doubting, faith. If you ever wonder that Jesus could love you, then I'm just telling you, look again to his cross and know again he loves you. He would give anything to have, even you, in all of your weak or doubting or fearful faith. That's what he responds to, always. Jesus always responds to this. Not people barking at him to do what they want him to do. (laughs) Not them manipulating him into doing what they want him to do. He responds to faith. This thin little splinter of faith that this guy has is more than enough. Precisely and solely because it rests in Jesus. So Jesus commands that spirit out of that boy, and it all happens so quickly. The peace falls on this kid so deeply that they think he's dead. (laughs) And Jesus just takes him by the hand and raises him up. Fast forward to later that night. Jesus and the disciples are alone. The disciples are wondering, so they ask him, Hey, Jesus, why couldn't we cast this one out? (laughs) You might remember that they had done that kind of thing before. We read about it together in, in chapter six of Mark's gospel. And Jesus' answer to them is so incredibly telling. He says, This kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. See, the disciples had obviously forgotten that they were not the ones who deliver people from oppression. God is the one who delivers people from oppression. Their sufficiency, their ability to that task was never the issue. Their sufficiency to that task, their ability to pull it off was never, ever relevant. Whatever the disciples had tried, whatever little technique they had learned to crack that really tough case... It hadn't included prayer, at least not the kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about. And so it didn't have anything to do with what really mattered in that moment in real life. The thing that mattered then was faith. And their prayerlessness in that moment exposed their true object of faith, which was themselves. And their ability to pull stuff off. Henry Nouwen wrote that prayer is a way of being useless and empty in the presence of God. And so proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace and that nothing is the result of simply hard work. Prayer is a way of being useless and empty in the presence of God. It's a posture of proclaiming the truth that is at the center of our faith, that this is all of grace. That's the kind of prayer that Jesus was talking about. And church, it's not just a way of praying. It is a way of living the Christian life, independence on the one who gives us everything. And that kind of praying and that kind of living exposes the true object of your faith and mine. And even if all we have is a thin, tiny splinter of faith, it is more than enough, way more than enough, if it rests in Jesus. We believe Jesus. Help our unbelief. Let me pray for us. Father, we believe, help our unbelief heal us, weaken our doubt, weaken our fear, weaken our despair, weaken this crazy desire that we have to do everything on our own, weaken that all in us so that we may rest in the true object, the only beautiful and unalloyed object of faith, your son Jesus, who has given everything for us. Father, help our unbelief, help us to rest solely in him. And do this certainly for our good as individuals and as families and friends and small groups and people who serve together. But do this also for the good of us as a body for the good of the broken world that exists all around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.